essentially that that's part of my theory as well is that everybody will have to print it's just that it will affect other countries more and as all that global capital gets printed and injected it will find its way into the u.s markets and the u.s dollar welcome to wealthion i'm wealthion founder adam taggart thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with u.s dollar expert brent johnson if you haven't yet watched part one of our discussion with Brent, in which he explains why he regards the recent headlines about de-dollarization risk are vastly overblown, head over to our channel at youtube.com Wealthion and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment themes we discuss in this video. Brent also kindly shares how he's allocating his portfolio for the rocky road he sees ahead in the second half of this year. So get ready to take good notes. Okay, let's get started watching part two of our interview with Brent Johnson. Um, I know you've asked me kind of how I'm allocating capital. I haven't changed a whole lot since the last time we talked. Um, my clients own equities. We've owned equities for years. We've owned the same equities for literally years and years and years. At times we hedge them and at times we don't. Right now we have them hedged. Um, that's actually been a frustrating experience so far this year because, you know, markets are up. I mean, the, the Dow's up 10 or 12%, NASDAQ's up 20%. Um, so the, but just because those assets have, have appreciated this year, doesn't mean they did so without risk. I think there was a lot of risk involved in getting those returns. And I think the easy money in risk assets has been made this year. Okay. I don't think and it's going to be as easy. This, um, yep. when you say equities, I, I presume you're talking mostly U S equities given yes. the yes. dollar milkshake view. Yeah. And I'm a proponent of U S equities. I don't think you need to go overseas. I don't think you get, I don't think the additional risk you take by investing in the emerging markets is worth it. So we're not allocated that way. Okay. And, and what attributes are you looking for when you add an equity to your basket? I mean, in general, because of where I think we are and because I think we're going to face a recession, whether it's a short one or a long one, I don't know. But because I want to be in kind of the big battleship companies that pay a nice dividend. Companies, you know, like John Deere, like Coca-Cola, like Philip Morris, Lockheed Martin. You know, you the, the nice thing now is you can build, if you just went very simple, if you did, if you put 10, per, 10 or 20% gold in your portfolio and 40 or 50% equities in your portfolio of the big blue chip type names that I just talked about that yield anywhere from three to 5%. And then you put the rest of your money into T-bills, you know, the other 30 or 40%, whatever's left over in the T-bills that yield four and a half or 5%. You know, that's not too bad of a portfolio right now, to be honest. Uh, that portfolio I mean, it's, it's does really not, well this year. Yeah. It's not very sexy, but it, it it works. I mean, you get, you get paid between three and 5% on 75, 80% of your money. The other 20% is in something that can't get inflated away and can't be destroyed by deflation. And, you know, you, you've got a call option on, you know, inflation over time. And if we go into a huge recession, you know, yeah, your blue chips will go down, but not as much as the NASDAQ and not as much as the small caps. And you've got and tons of, yeah, and they'll still pay you. And you've got tons of T-bills that you can use as cash to then go buy beat up companies. So I, I think that's actually a pretty decent portfolio. All right. And I'm trying to remember last time you were on, you, you said these are assets I'll go to war with. And I totally remember yeah. the U.S. equities, the gold and the treasuries. What was the fourth? I think it's probably real estate. I mean, I think okay. everybody should own real estate. I don't think everybody should have all their money in real estate because it's it's not portable. It's easily taxed. Um, but, you know, 
I think history shows that over time, owning land is actually a pretty good investment if you can if you can keep it, right? I right. think that could be a challenge. I think that could be a challenge in the years ahead. But if you can keep it, land is typically a pretty good investment. Right, and and if you don't mind, I want to string together a couple yeah. of uh, recent other experts what they've said in this channel with what you've said here, and and that comment made me think of talking to Michael Every. Um, uh, the Rabobank analyst who's based out in mm -hmm. Singapore, um, great for an ex-US view of the world. And um, like you, he uh, is pessimistic about the pace at which the dollarization will, will happen. Yeah. And he said, you know, kind of for that to really work the way in which we're kind of being sold, uh, <laughs> the, the, the process is, is the narrative is saying the process is going to work. He's like, ultimately, the world then has to be comfortable uh, aspiring to retire in China and store its money in Moscow, right? And you know, yeah. your part about like keeping it right yeah. in past when past regimes have gone bad, you know, the land gets confiscated, right? It's sort of like, hey, yeah, it's all fine to kind of you know dream of what could happen. We de-dollarize, but you're talking about regimes here that do not have a good history of human yeah. rights or, or or property protection. Yeah, and I just ask you, like, when is the last time you read a headline that talked about a Chinese official or a Russian official or, you know, some other third world dictator where they found out they had a hidden bank account in Singapore stuffed full of rubles or stuffed full of yuan? They don't because the the, the, the people in those, the, the leaders, uh, you know, the dictators, uh, the billionaires in those other countries, they do everything they can to get some wealth outside those countries, right? It doesn't mean they take all their wealth out there, but, you know, you, you don't, not too many people have a huge bank account in Switzerland stuffed full of rubles. <laughs> you know, I was just in Switzerland last week and I was talking to a banker at a very well-known private bank and he he manages accounts for Middle Eastern royalty. I mean, he works with the most wealthy people in the world. And when I asked him about, uh, you know, do any of them hold rubles or you want, he, he literally started laughing. Now, I'm not yeah. saying that to you know, bolster my case. I'm, that, that's a fact. You know, no, they don't. The, the, they don't hold those other currencies. Right. But there's and Chinese that hold dollars. Well, exactly. So I live out in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I, I believe it's cooled a bit. But I mean, I remember a few years back, you know, th there was a there were realtors that were flying Chinese over and and taking them in, in buses around, you know, Palo Alto and those types of towns. And literally people were like pointing like, I'll take that house. I'll take that house. And, and they're there because they're getting their capital out of China. And, you know, trying to store it here. In fact, a lot of those houses, yeah. apparently, people haven't even lived in. They've just literally been used as a store of value. And the thought is, yeah. hey, even if this is, I'm buying into a real estate bubble, even if it corrects by 50%, at least I got 50% of my money out, right? There are no corresponding plane loads of American investors going right. into, you know, Shanghai or, or Beijing and touring neighborhoods and buying them up like that. We, that, that that's, that's not... We don't have that equivalency yeah. here. Yep. You know, and, you know, all of this said, Adam, I, I want people to also realize also that I'm not saying that the dollar is going to turn it, you know, so so the dollar had, after 2020, the dollar pulled back about 10 or 12%. And when it was trading around eight or nine, 89 or 90, a lot of people thought it was going to 70 or whatever it was, 80 or 70. 
you know, and then it, instead it, it rose to 115. And now over the last six months, it's pulled back to 102. It could go back to 92 for all I know. It could go back to 85. But, but the point I want to get across to people is the dollar falling allows the system to continue running. It's not the dollar falling that causes problems. It's the dollar rising that causes problems. That's why they do QE. That's why they do bailouts. That's why they do stimulus, is when the dollar gets too strong and there's not enough dollars, they have to come back in and you know, provide more of them. But just in the same way that after 2020 and COVID, when it went to, 90, when it went to 80, or I'm sorry, when it went to 90, that didn't keep my theory, you know, I guess my point is, is that didn't, after everything they did after COVID, you know, think about everything they did after COVID, and yet the dollar still went to a 30-year high. I can't say that, that we, maybe we have another cycle. Maybe they come out and they do more QE. Maybe they do some more bailouts. Maybe the dollar goes back to 90. But I'm willing to bet that when that happens, and if that happens, that the rest of the world, even though they've talked about de-dollarizing, I bet they continue to issue debt in U.S. dollars. I can bet they continue to trade in U.S. dollars. And I bet the problem just gets bigger and bigger, and we'll be right back where we started two or three years from now. Um, and so while I think people don't quite understand this, and I should say this is like, when the, when the Fed loses control, that's not the dollar going lower. It's when the dollar goes to 120, 125, 130, that's when the Fed has lost control. That's when everybody is scrambling to get the underlying collateral for all the debt in the world. Right. And so, you know, the fact that it went to 115, I think that wasn't an accident. I think they were happy to put the rest of the world under pressure last year. And now, once they maybe they, they extracted a few concessions, kind of, you know, went to the meeting in Basel and said, see what we can do. Now you're gonna get in, you're gonna get in line or not, right? Mm -hmm. Now, now they've let the dollar come back. And you know, I, I don't know where it'll go from here. I just know it's not gonna end with the dollar going lower. Yeah. Um Wow, a couple of great things there, and I'm I'm looking at that time too. So I want to be respectful of your time, Brent. But um, yeah, as I said in the intro, that's why I I think the dollar milkshake theory is why I referred to it as is really one of the most explanatory uh, frameworks that made sense of what was going on basically in in, in those early post pandemic uh, months and quarters, um, where you know we were printing through the wazoo, right, and uh, and yet the dollar just kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And it's yeah. because the rest of the world was sicker than we were. <laughs> and yeah. everybody was trying to flee to the safety of our capital markets, right? So, um, and the whole yeah. euro dollar, you know, dynamic was happening. So um, I, I, I feel like you get to take a little bit of a victory lap here in the sense that it's not just a theory, you've actually seen some recent validation of this, right? Yeah, and you know, I... <laughs> As far as validation, whether it ends up being right again, you know, I, I don't really know. I think it, I th it's definitely what the theory has helped me do. It's helped me have a framework. And that framework has, has helped me over the last four years make sense of the world. And, it, and the world actually, when I look at it through that lens, the world makes a lot of sense. And I can understand why markets have done what they've done. And it's allowed me to keep my clients invested without, you know, whipping everything in into the market and then selling everything and getting out. And, you know, it's, we've been able to sleep at night. We're not freaked out all the time. We're not trading headline to headline. Now, again, if we get into a sovereign debt crisis and the dollar is rejected and the Euro and the yen and the yuan rise versus the dollar and, you know, and the dollar 
you know, it doesn't rise in a crisis, then, you know, I'll hold up my hand and say, I got it wrong. But, you know, in, until that happens, you know, I, I still think it's very valid. I think it's a good way to understand uh, the capital flows in the world. And, you know, the dollar going up or down over a period of days or months, it doesn't really matter to me until we get into this, you know, crisis. And, you know, if I end up being wrong, I'll have to pivot. But as of right now, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I'm happy to keep my framework and use it the same way I've used it for the last four years. All right. Okay. And I, I know, again, we're short on time, but I got to go here because you mentioned the word pivot. You reminded me we didn't no actually talk about uh, your thoughts on central bank policy from here. Um, obviously, markets have been planning for the Fed to pivot starting this summer. Uh, Powell has, if you listen to his words, has been resolute. Uh, nope, not even part of my plan. Uh, I do plan to pause yeah. at some point and then hang it there through the rest of the year. You did mention that you expect to see weakness in the economy in the second half of this year. Uh, weak enough to force a Fed pivot? Like, does something truly systemic break and, and force that? Or do you think Powell's going to hang tough no matter whether we have a recession or not? I think, well, first thing I'll say is if you understand the role of central bankers, if things get bad enough, of course they will pivot. That is the whole reason they exist to begin with. They are there to step into the breach and be the lender of last resort, you know, and the only game in town when everybody else is selling, right? So they will absolutely pivot if they have to. But I do think that he will not pivot quite as quickly as maybe some of the other people I listen to think that he will pivot. I think he's okay with the recession. I think he's okay with some jobs being lost. I think he's okay I mean, with he's, the asset prices being- He's trying to kind of pre-sell it, right? As best as- Yeah, I mean, right? exactly. And so I, I don't think he will pivot quite as quickly as everyone else thinks he will pivot. And the other thing I would say is, even if he pivots, if ever if the rest of the world pivots as well, does it really matter? You know, as, as far as the dollar goes, again, you know, the, the U.S. is not the only one in this situation. The rest of the world is in the situation as well. And it's it's just as likely that the ECB has to pivot or the, you know, Bank of Japan has to pivot or, you know, China has to ease money even more than they've already done. And so. Right. And sorry to interrupt. I, 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 so I, I do think things will get bad enough that the, that they will have to do something, whether I don't think it'll be a full scale pivot as quickly as others think it will. But it, that will eventually come. Essentially. Essentially, that that's part of my theory as well, is that everybody will have to print. It's just that it will affect other countries more. And as all that global capital gets printed and injected, it will find its way into the U.S. markets and the U.S. dollar. Okay. And we're already beginning to see several world central banks switch to pausing. So I yeah, think Australia, right. New Zealand, oh no, Canada, sorry, Canada, Canada uh, India uh, just did. Um and presumably we're going to do that, you know, relatively soon, but we're already seeing other people, you know, get to that step before yeah. us, like, like you're saying. So if we, if we have a recession and if we are one of the last to resist pivoting, um, do you expect the dollar to strengthen in that environment? I think the dollar, I think the reason that they would pivot was that the dollar would be rising and perhaps rising fastly, and that would cause the pivot. I wouldn't and, expect- and again, start, start to interject, but yeah. if there is a global recession, the dollar milkshake theory kind of suggests that the dollar will strengthen, right? Because weaker countries well, yeah, are if, seeking safety here. Yeah. And if you think about it, how if if the dollar is falling, then how, why why would there be a credit crunch, right? Like if if nobody wants the dollar and there's plenty of it, there's no need for a credit crunch. You know, if the dollar is falling, prices should be rising. 
it's when the dollar starts to rise and prices start to come down that forces a pivot. Okay. All right. Um, okay. So uh, just to sort of recap, uh, you see uh, one de-dollarization probably, I'm going to use the word vastly overblown in your eyes. Feel free to pick a different adjective if you want. You're nodding as I'm saying that. Yeah. Um, all right. You see good likelihood that we see an economic slowdown into the second half of this year, probably recession. You see Powell resisting the urge to pivot for as long as he can. So don't expect relief to come at least immediately. Dollar probably strengthens in there. Um, markets, I assume, probably go down. You've given us the allocation that you're hanging out in here. Um, do you expect the market? Let me ask you this. Given your outlook, do you expect the markets to sink to a lower bottom than we saw in 2022 or too early to call? I don't know if that will happen this year, but I, I do think I do think that we will revisit the lows. I'm not sure if we'll go lower than that, um, but I, I think that we will revisit the lows, whether it's in the second half of this year. I don't know if it'll get bad enough in the second half. It, 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 I mean, that, that could happen in the next 10 days. Right. right. <laughs> but I, I don't know that I expect it that soon. Um, but I do. I will say as of right now, and I always reserve the right to change my mind. I do think that that we will revisit the lows from last year. Okay. And let me ask this in parting, um, because I just recorded an interview like an hour before this one with Alf Pecatiello, who yeah. he's basically saying for a whole variety of reasons, um, he expects that when the Fed pivots, it's going to pivot about as hard as it pivoted before when it shifted from easing to tightening, where we had one of the most aggressive rate hikes on record. Um, so he's basically calling for, yeah, when the Fed pivots, it's not pivoting a little, it's taking rates back down to zero. Um, do you have a sense that it's whatever's going to force the pivot could could engender that extreme a response? Well, well, it it could, you know, I, I don't know, but I would say because I think he will resist the pivot, things could get bad enough to where he will would that when he eventually does pivot, he will have to pivot in a big way. Okay, which would kind of be consistent with the Fed's recent and longer term history of yeah. it's always a follower, right? Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, and if you think about it, this this is this is part of my argument is that if Powell is patient and he waits for there to be a lot of pain, then he can pivot without a lot of risks to himself. If he pivots right now and gets it wrong and inflation takes off again, he has risked his own legacy. But if he waits for there to be a lot of pain in the market, then he can ride to the rescue and be the hero. Right. He and can I the just, world beg him to pivot. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, Brent, look, um, as I said, it's always wonderful talking with you. Great discussion today. Um, for folks that have really enjoyed the discussion and would like to follow you and your work, where should they go? Well, I'm very active on Twitter, as you know. I, I always, I always have fun kind of debating with people there. Um, we also have yeah, a friend of mine and I started a, a show podcast. Uh, I don't like the word podcast, so I call it a show. Um, and if you go to at milkshakespod.com, um, it's there, and you can also find that on Twitter. And we do that once or twice a week. And I, you know, I think there's a number of now historical debates or debates, a number of historical interviews on your channel. Um, for, 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 for those who this is the first time they've heard me and are not familiar with all the topics that we've talked about. I think if you go back to some of those historical interviews on, on Adam's channel, 
I think there, there's been a number of pretty good interviews over the last year or so. So I, I would recommend checking that out. Thanks. And you reminded me, I forgot to uh, actually recommend a particular video for folks. If you want to get a deep dive into the dollar, make, dollar milkshake theory itself and really hear Brent expound on it for the better part of an hour, uh, I'll put up a link to that video right here. It'd be a great one to watch uh, after this one. Um, all right, Brent, well, when we edit this as usual, we'll put up the URLs to your regular Twitter handle and your your show uh, as well. Right. Um, and, uh, but, but real quick, I mean, you, you also do manage capital at Santiago capital, yeah. correct? That's right. So for, if you, if you're an accredited investor, you know, our, our, our minimum account size is a little bigger than the typical place, but anybody that's interested in, you know, customized separate, separate account management, um, you can reach me at Brent at SantiagoCapital.com. Uh, our website is SantiagoCapital.com. It's just a landing page with my contact information, but uh, feel free to uh, reach out if you want to discuss that in more detail. All right. Look, um, Brent, love having you on the channel. You're welcome back here anytime, especially if there's any development that changes your, your outlook at all. Uh, but thanks so much for the time. Look forward to having you on again soon. Thanks again. Well, all right. Well, now's the time of the program where we bring in the lead partners from New Harbor Financial, one of the endorsed financial advisory firms by Wealthion to both react to what Brent said, as well as update us on what the markets have been up to in the past week. I'm joined as usual by lead partners, John Lodra and Mike Preston. And uh, I'm hoping we can also not just get some reaction to uh, what Brent said, but maybe get a little bit of their reaction to what Alf Pecatiello and Michael Kantrowitz uh, have said on the, this channel this week as well. Guys, great to see you. Um, John, why don't we start with you? Um, what were some of your key reactions to, to Brent's commentary here? I know a lot of it, uh, particularly how he you know, talked about how he's allocated right now, probably sounded pretty consistent with your guys' outlook, but but let's hear from you yourself. Yeah, of course. And, and we've gotten to see uh, Brent several times on your program. Adam, always great to, to hear from him. Uh, he's perhaps most notorious for his milkshake theory, which is uh, certainly sounds like a yummy theory uh, for any milkshake fans out there. But it's it's actually uh, quite substantive in terms of his framework for looking at the U.S. dollar and and it's it's a very important role in the world, even though there are um, you know attempts to unseat it in terms of uh, reserve currency status and um, you know the like. Uh, he, I think he makes a very credible picture as to why. Um, the unseating of the U.S. dollar isn't going to be a, an overnight or easy thing. Uh, yes, perhaps its its uh, dominance will be eroded over time, but um, uh, he he is very very I think um, authoritative in his his reasonings for uh, not so fast on the death of the dollar, and and we agree with that. This is a is a you know the global financial system is is very complicated, very complex, and. Um, you know, certainly our our powers that be aren't going to let the dollar um, just be pushed aside and, and uh, a lot of complicating factors. And one of the things he points out is um, just the sheer size of the euro, euro dollar market, which is quite simply just the market for U.S. dollars outside of the U.S. as being quite a bit larger than the market for dollars here in the U.S. And, and all manner of uh, global trade is is conducted through the euro dollar market. So so there is a you know, basically the simple uh, takeaway is he, he believes, especially in, in 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 a sovereign debt crisis, the U.S. dollar will see strength because uh, all manner of parties uh, globally will be fleeing to the dollar. And gold, by the way, he thinks is is a, is a very good um, place to be. 
um, but fleeing to the U.S. dollar because of its its uh, dominance in 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 especially in times of crisis. Um, so um, he's very consistent and very authoritative, I think, and and it's tempting to look at headlines about you know BRIC countries talking about um, you know forming their own currency union. Uh, there may be progress there, but I think uh, Brent makes a very credible case as to why that's not going to happen anytime soon in, in a in a in a lights out kind of way. Um, yeah, his his positioning in that he he thinks gold is a very constructive place certainly aligns with ours, and and there's uh, we'll reiterate that there's there can be too much of a good thing. We certainly don't think gold is the uh, silver bullet. Excuse the pun, uh, but it's a very important part of uh, we think the. A prudent positioning for the kind of environment we're in. Um, the one area that I, I perhaps would would you know uh, uh, draw some contrast is you know he 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 talk, talks of a you know pretty much a no brainer portfolio. Of, those are my words um, of having about ten to twenty percent in gold, forty percent in kind of blue chip equities, and the rest in T bills. The only part we'd pick uh, a little bit of um, you know difference with him is is on the kind of the set it and forget it. Forty uh, percent blue chip equities. Broadly speaking, especially U.S. stocks are dramatically overvalued still, and we're we're just starting to see some of the kinds of erosion in earnings and margins and things like that that can be uh, and historically have been the the reasons for a dramatic re-rating downward of valuations. Um, so he he I think is a little bit more sanguine sanguine about the U.S. stock market as a you know just put forty percent. Of your your assets in in blue chip stocks, uh, even those can fall quite dramatically and dwarf uh, this, the dividend that you might collect by by capital losses. And we also would distinguish. We we think that global investments, especially emerging markets equities, are far better valuations and far better risk reward right now than the U.S. market. So those are just some key you know differences between our our take uh, at a broad level uh, with with brands. So I'll pause there. I'm sure there's more that Mike can add, and we can talk about further. Okay. Um, well, Mike, let's come to you. Um, feel free to add anything to that uh, that uh, you think needs to be added. And if you can also just address the the point that Brent and I were talking about near the end there, which is that um, you know part of Brent's concern is that uh, people are reading these dire headlines, getting all agitated, and then making perhaps fairly extreme capital allocation decisions out of this anxiety that the U.S. dollar regime you know is going to end tomorrow. Right. And um, you guys have been around uh, even longer than I uh, in terms of, uh, you know, talking to people about managing their capital um, over the past couple of decades. And, you know, we've seen a lot of periods where people got really panicked about certain things that they were convinced the dollar was going to hyperinflate tomorrow or now it's, it's going to get abandoned as the world's reserve currency. Uh, and you know we've seen at times people make really extreme decisions about something that they were so emotionally sure was going to happen imminently, and then it doesn't. And that can be very injurious if they kind of pushed all their chips all in on that very emotional bet. So curious to get your feedback on that too. Yeah, absolutely, Adam. Uh, what you're talking about is an all-in bet. It is psychologically and financially um, dangerous and difficult to live through that type of thing if you're wrong. It's very clear to me, it's very clear to us that potentially the U.S. dollar system could be at risk. Uh, what I've learned with age and time is that these things in history happen over large swaths of time. In one human lifetime, one career is relatively short in comparison to that. Brent talks a lot about uh, the U.S. being a bully and the U.S. dollar system 
um, and being uh, bully-like uh, to other countries. And it's true. We have had a fantastic advantage, you know, since World War II. I would say that we have abused that advantage and likely longer term, there probably is going to be a risk to the U.S. dollar dominance. However, uh, you know, as Brent says, the uh, the king standing on the mountain is not going to just get up and walk down the hill. You know, they're, they're going to have to be knocked off. And so that's scary. And I don't think anyone knows how that could likely happen. I don't even know that we know for sure that it would happen during our lifetime. But the risks are probably building. It seems like all major central banks are all in on money printing, and there really is no other plan other than printing more money. Brent talks about, uh, you know, if there's a pivot, if, if Powell pivots, other major co uh, countries are likely to pivot too. So we're, they're all just going to follow us, just like they did over the last 15 years. What does that mean? Uh, it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing, because then you start thinking about conflict breaking out and war and that type of thing. But I really respect Brent and his work. I've uh, known him for a long time, not personally, although I did get a chance to personally meet with him and, and talk to him down at the New Orleans Investment Conference that you were also at, Adam, last uh, November. Yeah, we got to watch the Preservation Jazz Hall Band, that private concert with you it was and I great. And Brent sitting right next to each other. Yeah. Yeah. So not only is he a, a great money manager, I had the sense that he was a great person, a very well-balanced person. So I really enjoyed speaking with him. A couple other things I took away from his talk here. Um, the markets have been violently going sideways. And it's true. I had to pull up a chart, took a, a look at the S&P. The S&P right now is trading at the exact same place that it was two years ago. We've essentially gone nowhere. We had a, a blow off top um, in 21 over, you know, basically went too far to the upside. Then we corrected last year. I don't think we corrected enough. It's been a very controlled decline, but essentially we're trading where we were two years ago. You recently interviewed Alf uh, Picatiello as well and uh, enjoyed that talk. He talked about the fact that the volatility, the two week volatility is as low as it's been in many years. We're starting to have very little fear. The VIX index is right around 17. ALF compared this summer of 2023, potentially to the summer of 2007, which was the time after the Fed raised rates three points or so. The markets were pretty sanguine and they weren't concerned about anything. He thinks, uh, this is ALF now saying, that potentially the summer of 2023 could be the same type of thing as the summer of 2007 with the volatility so low particularly if the S&P gets over 4,200, you know, he thinks that fear will drop even more. There's a lot of talk about uh, cash on the sidelines and investor bearishness and that kind of thing. I don't really see it. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of fear in this market. Alf says if we get above 4,200, volatility compresses even more. It could be a, a really good setup to hedge your portfolio. We would tend to agree. Puts will be cheaper. Um, it'll be a good time for people to either raise cash or or buy puts to protect. I would say that the good time to raise cash is right here, because even if we go above 4,200 and, and, and even have a slight spike above that, we're not talking about a big percentage move here. So short term, the markets do look like they want to go a little higher. There's this constant bid that's almost maddening in the market, just an in, in, uh, intense immediate buy the dip reaction. But valuations remain amongst the most extreme in history. And uh, I wouldn't wait for the summer to, to hedge or to lighten up, I would do it right here because there's no telling what could cause this market to roll over. It would take one or two bad days and all of the technical indicators that I just mentioned to you that were lining up bullish would be broken. We would be back into the downtrend channel. 
And a little later, if you want, I could share a chart and show you these things. Um, lastly, just to wrap up, just taking a look at my notes and seeing if there's anything else. He mentions that you know Powell will not pivot in, until things get really bad. I think he's right. That's probably a drop to around 3,200 on the S&P or so. Technically, that could happen quickly. There would be a lot of panic. That would give Powell the cover to go ahead and pivot. Um, you know, if that happens, maybe the market stabilize there. Maybe they don't. Historically, when central banks pivot and they start printing and easing, markets often fall right through there. That's what happened the last couple of times that happened in 2000 and in 2008. So um, we agree with most of what, what Brent talks about and, and even what Alf had talked about. Alf talked about long-term bonds. Long-term bonds are the best hedge for your portfolio because they are levered to uh, drops in interest rates, which would certainly happen if we had this type of economic accident and we got a Fed pivot, long-term bonds would rally. And that seems to line up with what Brent thinks. Brent likes gold, real estate, um, and high-quality stocks. You know, We would just say um, that we would, uh, like John said, we, we prefer emerging market and overseas stocks. But we have about 40% cash right now, too, cash equivalents and treasury bills, which are yielding darn close to 5%. So you can't go that wrong just by sitting back in a good chunk of cash, waiting to see what happens as uh, as we're drifting along here at almost 4,200 on the S&P. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, and I love that fact that you're connecting a few dots with some of the uh, earlier interviews we had this week. Um, so you mentioned, um, well, first you mentioned ALF saying that he sees a lot of similarities with the summer of 2007, and he did a really good job of, of kind of making the commonalities between then and now. Um, just to clarify a little bit, um, Alf said that he, he doesn't, you had said he sees the summer is going to be similar to the summer of 2007. He actually sees right now as similar to the summer of 2007. Um, and in 2007, you know, things were able to hang together until the end of the year. The wheels didn't really come off until we were into the early part of 2008. Alf doesn't think it's going to take that long this time around. He thinks the wheels are probably likely going to come off sooner. You mentioned 3,200 as to what you see the market could go down to when it has its next drop. That's the same price target that Michael Kantrowitz has right now for the S&P for the end of this year. Um, folks, if you haven't watched the Michael Kantrowitz uh, interview yet this week, you really need to. It's one of the most important ones, I think, that that I've recorded yet this year. Michael does a great job um, making what I've seen so far is the best empirical data-driven argument for why a recession and a market correction are highly likely this year. And it's constructed around his hope framework, um, which is a really compelling... We, we, we talk about the impact of the lag effect and how it takes a while for uh, Fed or central bank uh, monetary policy changes to make their way through the economy. And it often can take like almost a year or more before a rate change is fully expressed in the economy. Well, it propagates through a predictable progression, um, which Michael has condensed to uh, his HOPE framework, and that stands for H-O-P-E, housing, orders, profits, and then employment. That's sort of the progression it goes through. And what's, what's super useful about this is it, it gives us a strong sense of what timing we should expect, and it lets us monitor where we are in the cycle. And if you think of those as like four dominoes that need to fall in succession, well, housing's correcting, new orders are slowing, profits are beginning to come down. And now all of a sudden the employment 
domino, which had been looking pretty rock solid if you looked at the government data, is now beginning to look pretty wobbly. And it's when that one starts to fall, when unemployment starts to rise, is when he says that's when a new bear market starts. And so we're watching that data really closely. He hasn't seen enough deterioration yet in the unemployment situation, but the trend is heading in that direction. And when we see material weakness there, that's sort of like when it's game on from his perspective. So folks, if you haven't watched that video, uh, I'll put up a link to it right here, but you should highly go watch that if you haven't watched it yet. Um, all right. So, uh, you know, Michael, that's what Michael thinks is going to happen later this year. Now, he also thinks that, you know, what will happen is that the Fed will then respond at some point that, that something big enough will break. It'll get bad enough that the Fed will have to shift policy from tightening to easing. And uh, consistent with the way that the Fed is, has acted before, um, it tends to be a follower, right? And it tends to overreact, right? So it, it, it stimulated way too much in response to the pandemic. Uh, it then kept stimulating, even though uh, we saw inflation starting to take off and it kept telling us, oh, inflation is going to be transitory. Realized that wasn't the case. So switched to one of the most aggressive tightening cycles that we've seen in history. At this point, it may be in danger of over-tightening, creating an even worse recession than is necessary. And Michael thinks that you know the swing back to easing will probably be likely as violent. And this is where we get back to ALF, Mike, where ALF is predicting that we go back to ZERP, right? That we're not just gonna see a little easing, we're gonna see a lot of easing. And why that's so material to ALF's positioning here is um, one, uh, to force the Fed to do that, markets are going to get caught in a pretty bad downdraft. And that's why he says, hey, right now, uh, puts are getting really, really cheap because volatility is so low, as you pointed out, right? So he's saying, like, this is a really good opportunity to start getting, you know, longer term exposure uh, to a market downside trend, you know, if you've got the money and the know-how to, to work in the puts space, which for most folks, I would say, if you've never bought a put before, don't buy it on your own, buy it under the guidance of a professional financial advisor. Um, but there's definitely opportunity there. And as Elf says, um, uh, when you're a couple months away from the start of the recession, that's the best time to buy bonds, right? You lock in those high rates. And if you're right, and the market does roll over and the Fed then aggressively starts easing, bringing interest rates down, that's when the, the uh, market value of the bonds can start going up. And if the Fed is aggressive enough to, to cut from five down to zero, uh, the long end of the bond is going to go absolutely bananas uh, in terms of uh, appreciation in, in a situation like that. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking my time to really emphasize all this for you listeners, because you, you don't get great market setups every day. And what we're hearing right now is an increasing number of analysts say, hey, for a certain number of asset classes, this is really when the light's beginning to flash green that we've got pretty high confidence in this trade. So, John, I'll come back to you here, but anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I'd like to piggyback on, on the comment about puts. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, uh, time to hedge. Hedging right now is, is relatively cheap because of volatility, implied volatility being quite low. Um, but even still, um, hedging costs money, right? Just like buying insurance costs money. So there are thoughtful strategies, hedging strategies that one can use to, to defray the cost of, of that hedging. So I'll bring it back to, for example, Brent Johnson's comment about holding 40% in good quality equities. Nothing inherently wrong with that. I, I did distinguish that we are a little less sanguine about you know, the, the risk there. Uh, Michael Kantrowicz, uh, I want to talk about his talk in a, in a moment. 
he he basically is of the mind that like we are that the risk reward proposition for equities right now is pretty poor uh, because of what looks like it's in the, in the python right now um but if you're intent on having a 40% or 60% or a pretty traditional 60-40 stock bond mix, you can have that, but there are really sensible ways you can hedge that to really greatly diminish the effective risk in your portfolio in the event of a, a market weakness or market event. Uh, and there are ways to combine different uh, option strategies, for example, versus just buying puts, you can do various combination trades with calls and puts to essentially offset the cost and, and maybe even make it costless to, to provide um, some downside protection. And that's something we do hands on here at New Harbor all the time. Uh, and, and happy to talk to folks, especially if they have specialized situations where they don't want to sell or can't sell because of capital gains. You know, that, that's really where a thoughtful hedging strategy can 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 help uh, check a, a number of, number of boxes. Um, but uh, Michael Kantrowitz's uh, talk, I, I got about two thirds through it. Um, found it great. I've, I've been following him on Twitter for a while, and uh, like many folks that we 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 hold in high esteem, he he comes at it with a analytical construct and data construct that we think is really uh, the basis for good judgment making, not just kind of cliches or guesses or or biases, but really data and and. Uh, and I love it when a uh, mnemonic works out in such a, a great word like hope, right? <laughs> hope and investing should never be, uh, they're, they're not good bedfellows. But, um, you know, he, he talked about, for example, housing peaked in terms of new construction and stuff in, in uh, November of 2020. Uh, ISM orders, new orders uh, peaked, at least seemingly peaked in March of 2021. So, you know, a handful of months after. Uh, corporate profit um, and profit margins peaked in, in June of 2022. We're, we're now seeing headlines about uh, analyst uh, profit projections starting to be trimmed. This is all kind of really consistent with the hope uh, cycle framework that Michael talked about. And the big question is, is are we going to see that employment final domino really uh, take a topple uh, perhaps this year? And, and you know, interestingly enough, uh, we're seeing headlines that, you know, we're seeing layoffs. Uh, you know, I think Bank of America in their earnings report just talked about big layoffs today. Um, you know, I think Meta and other tech companies have have, have uh, announced new new rounds of layoffs. Uh, we also saw, um, and this gets back to the corporate profit margins and how when those start to get challenged, the natural progression is that layoffs start to happen and employment uh, unemployment ticks up. We saw data coming out where I think uh, Q3, the, the actual rate of increase in, in wages exceeded the rate of increase in inflation for the first time in quite a while. That speaks to uh, labor, you know, wages starting to put pressure on corporate margins, which still are at near record levels from a his long-term historical standpoint. Uh, as those margins come down, the profit margins, uh, the PE ratios shoot way high, uh, even higher than the already elevated levels that they are. So we think there's a whole lot of you know uh, data, and and it's consistent with what Michael Cantor talks talks about in these kind of cyclical uh, phenomena that don't always play out exactly, but they certainly follow a very familiar uh, pattern. We're starting to see that uh, play out in the, in the headlines and in the data. Um, so yeah, and if I could just interrupt for a second on that, so like. It's a great framework, the HOPE framework. Um, it's built off of, uh, you know, decades and decades and decades of data um, that go through many recessions. And so it's basically, it's an amalgamation of, you know, all the averages from all the different uh, cycles that we've gone through before. So it's not just a guy's opinion. 
right? It, it's it's incredibly data rich. And if you watch the the video, you'll you'll see what I mean. Um, the heat maps that he puts together around this are are a work of art. Um, but but if you're asking yourself, okay, well, you know, who's this guy, Michael Kantrowitz? Maybe I've never heard from him before. You know, if you just look at many of the major elements in there, well, let's talk to the experts. Like in housing, you've got Robert Schiller, developer of the Case Schiller Index, who's saying, look, housing is at a clear peak. It's clearly in correction, and housing prices likely have a lot farther to fall from here. Right. So, like the godfather of of measuring the housing market is agreeing with what the Hope model is saying. If you look on the the P side of things, the profits, right? You have guys like Jeremy Grantham who say that that is the most one of the most mean reverting data sets that we have in finance, right? And as you said, you know, John, it is beginning to look like the mean reversion is underway, right? So it's kind of like you know, as, as Michael likes to say too, he's like, look, this not, none of what I'm saying here is a silver bullet. What I like to see is a ton of data sets or data inputs that tell the same story, because when they all start to sing from the same song sheet, then I have more confidence in what the framework is telling me. That's what we're seeing is we're just seeing an awful lot of different inputs that are saying the same thing that give us all increasing confidence that, yes, this is always predicted in the past that X will happen. The more that we see all these things you know, agreeing, yeah, we are confident that X happening and X happening uh, should be going up. Now, the, the HOPE model basically says if these things happen, um, these dominoes fall, uh, then a recession ensues. So, of course, the next question that comes up is, okay, well, is it a light recession or a bad recession? Is it a soft landing or a hard landing? And Michael goes through all that data and basically said, look, um, here's what, here are the, the things that um, determine whether or not you're going to have a hard landing or not. These are the essential ingredients. You need to have inflation. You need to have rapid Federal Reserve rate hikes uh, being made to fight that inflation, and you need tightening bank landing standards, right? That's exactly where we are today. So um, that's uh, you know why Michael is a so confident we're going to have a recession, and b saying, look, folks, you know history shows that you know the only times we've had a soft landing, we haven't had inflation, the Fed's been easing, and bank lending standards are loose. That's not where we are today. So um, reiterating all of this because again, we've got these you know three experts this week alone: Brent Johnson, uh, Alf Pecatiello, and Michael Kantrowitz, all basically saying the same thing, just looking through different lenses. Uh, that you know, odds look really high that uh, we're going to have some sort of economic event this year, like a recession. Uh, it's probably going to you know send the markets downwards by a material amount, uh, and then at some point, um, uh, particularly because as, as Alf was very eloquent in saying, the Fed is not going to want to have to. It's going to want to protect its credibility, right? So it's going to remain tight for as long as it possibly can. But once the world starts begging it. Uh, to pivot, it'll pivot and it'll probably pivot with the same intensity that it pivoted into tightening the last time around, which will again impact a number of asset classes uh, very significantly. Um, you know, bonds being a big one, gold being a big one, um, several others I'm sure that we can get into. Um, but anyways, we're, we're seeing a lot of data and a lot of people saying the same thing, which, you know, the contrarian in you has got to start worrying at some point. But right now, I think that that is just a preponderance of evidence to say, you got to take a recession and a market correction, at least into consideration and however you're going to be allocating your capital from here. Um, all right, Mike, as we begin to wrap up here, feel free to comment on, on anything I just said there, but um, we'd love to just do a quick check-in with, with gold because that's come up in several of the speakers' um, portfolios this week. 
Uh, but also, you know, gold's seen a little bit of a pullback this week. I think the last time I checked it, did it drop below 2000? Don't know if it's recovered above that yet or not. What, what's going on with gold? Yeah, I'll answer that in just a moment. But I just wanted to say one more thing about, about Alf's uh, talk. He said the best time to buy bonds is three or four months before a recession. We don't know exactly when the recession is going to hit or even if one will hit. But the odds are are pretty high, I think, based on the uh, the data that he he talked about. And, and sorry to interject, just want to make sure for those reasons, he said, look, you know, if, if you're not, if you already don't have exposure, like start dollar cost averaging now. Don't don't try to pick a magical top here. Don't try to don't try to pick your bet of when you were three months out and only make one trade then, you know, get yourself in over time. Yeah, he said that. I mean, the, the, the 10 year yield is down on the threes, but he admitted that he owns some of the 10 year here. So absolutely dollar cost average into it. And um, you could take a look at the data online. One easy thing to look at is uh, ticker symbol TLT. Although it's not a recommendation, that's something that you can pull up on your charts pretty easily. That's the long-term US treasury bond. It's trading uh, around 104. If uh, if we do have that, that large kind of panic moment later on, presumably after some kind of economic accident, and we go back to ZERP, especially if we go back to ZERP, you could see all bonds trading much higher. And by extension, that proxy TLT could be much higher. Could be, you know, I don't know that it would go back to its old highs, but it could be somewhere around 140 or so if you just kind of step, step back and look at the charts. So uh, it's it's not an easy trade to do. Not a lot of people want to, to buy bonds, particularly after last year's bloodbath. I mean, bonds were down harder than stocks last year. But if you think about what's likely to happen, we've got a stubborn... Uh, Fed, they're not likely to pivot anytime soon. They're going to wait for some kind of economic accident or for the recession to actually come. And then they want to go in and go big. Uh, bonds will react to that at that point. Yeah. And also, I, I, you were, go ahead, Adam. Just, just real quick, I want to make one good point that, that Alf made, which was like, you know, the 10 year. Um, I mean, it got up to four. It's now down. It, it, it went down to I don't know three point three, three point four. It's now up to three point six. For people that are saying, "Oh, I want to wait till it gets back up to four. I think what Alf is saying is, "Is well, dollar cost average." So you know, in case it doesn't, at least you got in. But he's also saying, like, don't sweat it too much from his perspective because he's like, if we're going back to zero, the difference between three point six and four, it's not that big of a deal, right? Like you're still going to ca capture the vast majority of the upsell. Don't sit there waiting to try to top ticket and then have the market move on you and then you miss the whole thing, right? Absolutely. You don't have to be perfect here. Just take keep an, keep your eye on the big picture. You don't have to make any big bets. We wouldn't tell anybody to make any big bet on anything and, and not on the long-term bonds either. But uh, if you want to start to nibble and maybe build a position of 10 or 15% over time, it would be an excellent time to start dollar cost averaging in. Our model has a roughly 15% position in long-term bonds. So we expect them to be higher over time. This is more of a short to intermediate term trade. We don't want to be in a long-term bond for the next 20 years, for instance, but we we certainly want to be there maybe for the next year or part of it. So uh, just thought I would reiterate that. As far as gold goes, the chart is still looking beautiful. We talk about this almost every week. Uh, gold futures right now, I'm looking at my screen are around 2006. Spot gold is just about 2000. Uh, there's been a healthy pullback the, the last couple of days. Gold mining stocks, silver mining stocks have pulled back the last couple of days. The charts are still looking good. They're not broken. It's just a backfilling, at least so far. Um, GDX, which is a good proxy, a proxy for the gold mining shares, went to almost 36. 
it was around 34 this morning. So it's hanging right around that 35 level. If gold pushes through, clears 2100, let's say, you should see uh, gold mining stocks go higher, GDX maybe in the high 30s. And if we start to see the gap close between the miners and the gold price, then the gold miners could do much better. They're still underperforming. If you look at where mining stocks were back when gold was above 2,000 an ounce or at 2,000 an ounce, they're a good $10 lower. If you look at GDX, it was more, it should be more like 45, not 35. Not quite sure why there's that divergence there, but um, we're hoping and thinking that that divergence will close. I'm not sure what it's going to, what's going to cause it. Maybe the market is just not convinced about this break above 2,000 yet. And They've got a lot of good reason not to be convinced about it because it's just kind of hanging there right now. But wait and see uh, what happens. If we get a break above 2100 and it stays there, we should see it run. Should also note that the dollar has been has been weak uh, the last few weeks, last few months. And right now, over the last couple of days, the dollar bounced. So that's also causing this normal reaction back in gold. And I know that Brent Johnson thinks the dollar is going much higher and he's probably right. but. For the near term, it looks like the dollar could continue the downtrend, could even have another flush lower, which could give us that pop in gold prices. Yeah, and, and to be clear, Brent said that he wouldn't be surprised if the dollar went down to 90 or even in the 80s exactly. before it strengthens back there. So it's not like he's calling for you know 150 tomorrow on the on the DXY. Yeah, and, and gold, well, yes, I, I've heard him say that number before in, in the height of the panic. And everyone's moving their capital to the U.S. Sure, the dollar index could go to 150, but during that time of panic, gold could go up during the same time too, in dollar terms. Normally, gold prices are inverse to the U.S. dollar, but not always. So I, I can envision a time where they could both go up together. All right, great. Um, all right, well, look as we uh, as we begin to wrap up here, we've had uh, you know a number of great topics that have been brought up in this discussion that I think for most people. Um, they probably don't have a lot of familiarity in, in, in investing, buying, or trading in them. Um, uh, you know, I'm thinking of some of the hedges that John talked about earlier. Uh, obviously, bonds. Not everybody is is familiar with buying uh, bonds, particularly if they're buying individual bonds themselves. Um, and so, I'm just going to reiterate what I always do in this program, which is um, th there's a time here now where it seems like the downside risk, the economy, and the markets, the probability of that is becoming clear. Got to remind everybody, nobody has a guarantee. Uh, nobody has a crystal ball of what exactly is going to happen. But as Michael Kantrowitz, uh, as his analysis showed probably the best this week, we can make a really compelling empirical case for arrival of recession and lower uh, market prices this year. So you have to factor that into your, your, your outlook um, in terms of how to defend against that, you know, protect your capital, and then how to take advantage of that with some of the strategies that we just mentioned here highly recommend that the average person work under the guidance of a professional financial advisor who, one, takes into account all the macro issues our speakers this week uh, have brought up, uh, but then also sits down with you and creates a personalized investing plan for you based upon your particular needs, goals, personal situation, risk tolerance, all that type of stuff. Um, but not only just creates the plan, but it then actually executes it for you, you know, including you along the way as much as you want to be. Uh, but is the one who's actually looking at the developments on the ground and making changes and tweaks if necessary based upon the changing landscape here. If you've got a good one who does that for you already, great. You should stay with them. But if not, um, 
if you don't have one or if you'd like to get a second opinion from one who does, maybe even John and Mike and their team at New Harbor Financial, uh, just schedule a free consultation with one of the financial advisors endorsed by Wealthion by going to Wealthion.com, filling out the short form there. Uh, that free consultation doesn't cost you anything. There's no commitment to work with these guys. It's just a um, free public service that they offer to help as many people as possible position prudently in advance of what our speakers say is not guaranteed to happen, but is is probable later this year. Um, and if you've enjoyed uh, all the speakers we had this week, from Brent to Alf to Michael Kantrowitz, um, please do me a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button and clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Um, John, I'll let you have the last word here. Any parting bits of advice for folks? Yeah, Adam, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, pay homage to the uh, tra traumatic traumatic event we most of us just went through, known as tax day and the deadlines that yeah. usually creep up on us. But, but it, it actually really is a relevant thing to talk about because as much as we talk about investment-related stuff here in markets, a lot of what we and our team do... Uh, branches off into the realm of financial and tax uh, uh, tax aware planning and things like that. So, you know, you just did, you did your tax return, you know, some things to look out there, look at what your marginal income tax bracket uh, was. There might be opportunities, for example, uh, for you to do some elective conversions of traditional IRAs into Roths and still stay in a very uh, favorable tax bracket. Uh, we think tax rates are going higher in the future. Why not try to distribute some funds today at, at current tax rates and get them into a tax-free Roth IRA uh, so that if we do have higher taxes in the future, um, th those assets grow tax-free. Uh, look at uh, to what extent you had reported capital losses and, and most importantly, carryover losses that you can use to offset gains that you might, might be able to take in appreciated securities today to allow you to get more defensive, more conservative without uh, worrying about incurring capital gains uh, taxes. Uh, those are just a couple of the things that you know we routinely talk to clients about, and we'd encourage folks at home to to you know use this recent uh, tax uh, season to kind of refresh their 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 thoughts on 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 things that they could do thoughtfully from a tax planning standpoint. Well said, John. I'm really glad you raised that. And just a reminder for folks, um, you know, we had tax expert Tom Wheelwright on the program two months ago or so. And, um, you know, he was, again, encouraging folks, you should definitely do everything that John just said with your financial advisor, but you should also reach out to your accountant or partner with a good accountant um, who can really help you here early in the year, determine what steps you can take in the year to reduce your tax footprint. You know, as Tom very accurately said, when you come to your accountant at the end of the year, you know, with a shoebox full of receipts and say, hey, this is what happened, do my taxes. There's not much that the accountant can do except do your taxes, right? Like, okay, the year's over. I can't change history. So let me just report what you did. Where he said, look, if you come to me as your accounting partner at the beginning of the year, we can talk about a whole host of things that you can do that if you take those steps, that then lets me claim a whole bunch of deductions I otherwise wouldn't be able to do. So reach out to your tax professional. Now, if you don't have a good one, uh, consider talking to Tom Wheelwright and the folks at his firm uh, to do that, just go to wealth, uh, sorry, wealthion.com slash wealth ability. Um, all right, John, thanks so much for that reminder. Um, John, Mike, thanks so much for giving me so much time this week. It was a really great week with uh, the amount of talent we had this week. Next week is going to be just as strong. Um, uh, and uh, whatever happens in the markets from here, folks, uh, John and Mike will be here with us again next week, making sense of it, us, making sense of it for everybody. And everybody else, thanks so much for watching this.
we appreciate and enjoy your your content. You've been really busy this week and always, and uh, we, we're grateful to be part of it. Thanks, Adam. Absolutely. We'll see you again next week, Adam. Thanks so much. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type, the kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we've put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right. With all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.